Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. Last week, we talked about putting off the old self and putting on the new self and the fact that that's part of what it means to grow as a follower of Jesus. You're you're shedding old ways of thinking, you're shedding old values, you're shedding old habits, and you're replacing those with habits that will actually help you become more like Christ. So this week, we're going to talk about some specific ways that we do that. Uh, I had one of the guys that used to disciple me um, said, used to say, nothing becomes dynamic until it becomes specific. Nothing becomes dynamic until it becomes specific. So it's one thing to have just these vague, general concepts and ideas, and it's another thing to have some concrete, what does it look like to live this way practices. And that's what today we're going to get into some very concrete things. And some of these, these are the types of things they sound easy, but they're hard. They require a deep faith and trust in God to carry these things out. So Paul's going to look, he's going to lay out for us what it looks like to adopt practices and cultivate attitudes that encourage a harmonious, Christ-centered community. Harmony in our church. The problem is we're still sinners, And there's a real danger in worshiping the idea of community. You could worship the idea and get so hung up on this idea of community that becomes idealized in your thinking, and you end up not loving the people around you. It's easy to love the idea of community because there's no real people, (laughs) it's just an ideal. It's a concept. Nobody stinks beside you. Nobody does things that annoy you. It's just a vague platitude. Community. Let's be a strong community. It's much more difficult to actually love the person sitting next to you. I'm not talking about sitting next to you literally right now. But it's much more difficult to love individuals than it is to just love the idea of Christian community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, unpacks that in a really helpful way if you want to study more. The point, though, is Christian community isn't a flowery, vague concept that we write poems about. It's gutsy. It's agonizing. It's painful. It's annoying. Because you're dealing with real people. But it's the gymnasium in which we exercise love. When you're a pastor, sometimes you get to hear people say some funny things. Um, We'll have people that will visit Southside maybe once or twice or other churches I've been a part of. And they'll say things like, well, I would love to be here, but it doesn't feel like a biblical community. It doesn't feel like first century community. And... My question is, so you're looking for a church that practices factions and incest and getting drunk during communion because that was first, that's Corinth. Is that the type of biblical community you're talking about? Well, no, not that. I mean, I mean I'm talking about the Acts 2 biblical community described. Yeah, they knew each other for a couple weeks. 
The problem is those groups went off and went to their own towns and then they became home churches where a bunch of messy stuff happened. We, I, we make community our God, this vague, unrealistic notion. Here's what community is. It's loving the person next to you. And we always say, if you're not involved enough in community that you're terribly annoyed by someone, then you're not involved enough. And if other people aren't involved enough in community where they're not terribly annoyed by you, then you're not involved enough because you are annoying. (laughs) And I'm annoying. That's reality. So we're not going after some vague notion of Christian community. Community is just awesome. No, we're learning how to love real people who are sinners just like you are and just like I am. So Paul in today's passage is describing the gutsy, realistic ways that we practice this level of Christian community that is befitting the gospel. And what we're going to do is we're just going to walk right through these. We're going to start in chapter 4, Ephesians 4, verse 25, and I'm going to read a little bit at a time and kind of explain it. It's a little bit different uh, way of preaching because we're going to hit every single one of these these verses. He just machine guns a bunch of very concrete ways on how we practice this unity that God is building. All right, you ready? 425. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Let's stop there. Whenever you lie, Whenever you exaggerate, whenever you tell just the littlest white lie, you're always doing so either to promote or protect yourself or somebody else that you care about. Every lie that you say, you're promoting yourself somehow. Every exaggeration, every exaggeration, you're protecting yourself somehow. And once trust is lost in a group, community begins to disintegrate. Trust is absolutely essential. It's a glue that holds together community. There's a graphic illustration of this in Acts 5. It's Ananias and Sapphira. Some of you have heard this, but this really illustrates how seriously God takes honesty in the, in the community of the church. At that time, uh, people were selling property and they were selling things that they owned, possessions, and then they would take the money to the apostles to disperse how they saw, um, where they saw it was most needed and to give to the poor and to take care of people in the church family. And so Ananias and Sapphira are these, it's this married couple, and they decided to sell their property too. But the problem is they pretended that they were giving to the apostles all of the money that they sold it for. They could have just been honest about it and said, no, we kept some for ourselves because we needed a little bit of it, but we're giving this much. But they pretended like they were giving all of it. That was where they went wrong. Ananias walks into the room with the apostles and he he lays the money at their feet and says, there you go, boom, sold our property. It's all there. And Peter's in the room. And Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? It was your property. You could have done anything you wanted. You could have been honest and just told us you kept some. You're saying that this is all of it. Why did you lie? 
And Ananias just goes, thud. <laughs> he falls over and dies. And some young guys come into the room, they wrap him up and they carry his body out, they bury him. A few hours later, Ananias' wife, Sapphira, comes into the room. I mean, it's getting out, so this is really creepy, something scary happened, like we're not sure what's happening. But Ananias died. So Sapphira is freaking out about it, and she's you know, looking for her husband. It had been several hours. She goes into the room, and Peter's standing there. And he says, tell me something. Is this the cost that you got for your property? And she said, yeah, that's it. That's it. That's what we got. And Peter's like, oh, come on. <laughs> Why do you test the Holy Spirit? And then he said, the same feet that came in and got your husband and buried him are about to come get you. And at that moment, she must have been like, well, wait, 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 and just boom, thud. She falls over dead. This is New Testament. <laughs> That's the creepy thing about it. And the same feet that carried out her husband carried her out. I think God was making a point that he doesn't like deception in the church. And I think Ananias and Sapphira, I think they're fine. I think they went to be with Jesus. I think we're going to meet them in heaven one day. So I, I think they're fine. I don't, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say anything about that. But that's my guess. But it made a pretty graphic point, didn't it? He was establishing early the importance of honesty because falsehood disintegrates community. Let's look at verse 26, hopefully a little more cheerful. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. We were, uh, actually Bree asked a question about this. We were back in this room. The music team and I, or whoever's preaching, if it's Alex, uh, just gather together and do just a time of getting focused before coming out here and um, serving you guys. And uh, Bree asked a question, is, this, is that a literal thing? Like, I think she thought that it wasn't, and I don't think that it is either. Does it literally mean don't let the sun go down on your anger? And I think it's probably a pretty good practice. I think it's probably wise. But it can't literally mean it because we were saying in parts of Alaska, you can go weeks without being angry at anybody because the sun doesn't go down completely. So I don't think it's like, like super literal. It's just a really good idea, which essentially means don't let anger fester. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But being a disciple of Jesus impacts your emotions. It's supposed to touch your heart. We have a, our, a group, a team of 12 people who are called our shepherd or shepherding team, and we're learning how to oversee as a team the spiritual health of Southside. And in March, I passed out this book, Emo Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. And we're reading through it a chapter at a time and then discussing it. And I'm actually going to preach through it this fall, starting in September, after Fair Week. I learned that last year. You have to do it after Fair Week. You start these things. <laughs> I should know that. I grew up here. But the shepherd team gets in groups of three together, same gender groups, every week for 30 minutes. And we answer three questions. The first question is, how's your heart? because we don't know how to talk about our hearts. And we're going to learn to do that as a church. Why is it important to talk about your heart? 
Because Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. It's the most important thing you should be protecting in your life. And the Western church gets weird about this. You know, I'm not going to talk about my feelings. We don't talk about our feelings. Then you should just get it over with and become a stoic. Because when you're a stoic, you don't have to talk about your feelings. You just get to talk about how you control your feelings. And somehow stoicism has slipped into the Western Christianity. And if you don't like talking about your feelings, you're not going to like Jesus. He just doesn't let us get away with that. God isn't just interested in discipling your brains. He wants to disciple your entire being. He wants all of you, including your emotions, including our hearts. So Paul's addressing anger here. And there is a way to be angry and not sin. And Jesus modeled that for us. And that is, that is a level 1,000 discipleship. To know how to be angry and not sin is supernatural. One of the ways that we sin in our anger is venting. Uh, Proverbs 29, 11 says, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Venting is not a godly thing. Venting is ungodly anger expressed. It's spilling out all the stuff in you on somebody else. Another way we sin in our anger is we nurse it, we rehearse it over and over, we ruminate on things that we don't like about people, on things that make us mad, and when anger ferments, it turns to wrath. And when wrath hardens, it turns to bitterness. And you can't isolate bitterness. We think we can just be bitter with this person over here and then the rest of our life we're fine and loving and tender-hearted. Bitterness doesn't work that way. It's like thallium. This dangerous element that goes through your skin membrane. If you're holding it and it poisons your whole system, that's what bitterness does. It poisons your whole system. And one day you wake up and you're a bitter person. God doesn't want that for us. He doesn't want that for you. And if bitterness has poisoned you, you know it. You know it. The remedy is to not let sun, the sun go down on your anger, which means to not stew on it, to overlook offenses, to be gentle and kind. Grace covers a multitude of sins. To not be easily offended, that's a low, that's low-hanging fruit. To grow up in Christ, the first thing is to work on not being easily offended. That's what Paul is trying to teach us about community. Anger is another thing that will shred community. Let's look at verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so, they, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Notice the progression. He starts as a person who takes from others for himself and ends as a person who takes from himself for others. He starts as someone who's going to take from other people to provide for his own needs 
And then he becomes someone, as he moves into Christian community and he learns what it looks like to follow Jesus, he becomes someone who knows how to take care of his own needs with his own hands. He works quietly with his own hands. So Paul says in Thessalonians, be someone who works quietly with your own hands, doesn't make a big deal out of it, just takes care of yourself and your family and then others. Moves from taking from others for himself to taking care of himself and his family with his own work to giving to others out of the overflow of what he makes. That's a spiritual progression of a thief. Another thing this passage tells us is anyone, regardless of your past, is invited to be part of the church. And as you begin to experience the grace and the softness and the love of Jesus, you begin to change. You begin to be transformed. The thing is, you have to change. You have to learn to put off your old self and those old habits that are self-destructive and that hurt community. When Jesus stood up for the woman who was caught, caught in adultery, and he said, basically, there's no condemnation for you. You are forgiven. You're welcomed into community with, with me. All your accusers are gone. I don't accuse you either. I don't condemn you either. But do you know what he said as she was walking away? Go and sin no more. We forget that part of grace sometimes. We're going to come back to that. When you come into Christ-centered community, there are certain habits and things that you hang on to because this is what makes you feel alive or comfortable or at peace that you got to let go of. And God's going to ask you in different ways to actually trust in Him to be your God instead of the other things that we used to rely on. All right, verse 29. Are we having fun yet? Raise your hand if you're having fun. <laughs> I love you, man. I just absolutely love you, Jay Bird. Jay Bird. All right. Um, I need to just let the air out of the room there. Uh, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. We say this. You've heard me say this. Citizens of the United States have freedom of speech. Citizens of the kingdom of God do not. We don't get to say whatever we want to say. We're only permitted to say things that build up the hearer. We're only permitted to say things that communicate God's grace to those who hear. Matthew 12, 36. You can write that in the margins of your notes if you like it. You probably won't. I don't. Matthew 12, 36 says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Every word not tempered by wisdom and grace and love and humility will have to be answered for. Jesus will review our lives, I think, in front of one another. Now, if you are in Christ, you are safe from condemnation. You will enter into the kingdom, but you're missing out on reward. Every word you say that's not edifying and building up and imparting grace to people, you're missing out on an opportunity for reward. 
James 1.26 says, if you don't control your tongue, your religion is worthless. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And we've been talking about different ways that we grieve one another, that we grieve the people around us. But what we're seeing is there's a third party involved in Christ-centered community, and that is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit isn't merely some force or some power that's just like we're, we're magically endowed with this thing. It's a person. It's relational. He is relational. It's God with us. And when we do things that hurt Christ-centered community, the unity that Jesus has given us in Christ, that we've learned so far about through Ephesians, when we do things that hurt that, it grieves the Spirit of God in us. He's an actual person. I don't want to be the one who's grieving the Lord. Uh, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. He kind of just like sums it up. All this stuff, put it away from you. Bitterness, get rid of it. Wrath, get rid of it. Anger, get rid of it. Clamor, slander, put it away from you. Malice, put it away from you. In Genesis 4, uh, God is having a conversation with Cain. You know, Cain and Abel um, are brothers, and they're, they're some of the first humans. God's talking to Cain, and he's saying, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It's a scary image that God uses there, like some creature that's crouching at the door that he's saying, Cain, don't open the door to it. Don't let sin in. You've got to learn to control that. That's what he tells them. You need to master that. You need to rule over it. You can't let sin in that way. It's vivid imagery. And you know what? That he ignores God in the very next verse. He kills his brother. And it got him. There's a great scene in Tombstone. When we do a man night, <laughs> a guy's night, we're going to watch Tombstone. Don't hold me to that. I just think it's a great idea. I just thought of it just now. So I'm, I'm just spitballing. I'm not committing to it. But it is a great movie. And there's a, there's a lot of great theology in Tombstone, isn't there? Some of you know there's a lot of great theology in Tombstone. There's a lot of amazing scenes. And it's Val Kilmer's best work. It's incredible. So Wyatt Earp is talking to Doc Holliday. Doc Holliday's dying in bed. And Wyatt Earp is going to have to deal with this the antagonist, Ringo, and he's trying to understand him. And Wyatt Earp says, what makes a man like Ringo, Doc? What makes him do the things he does? And Doc Holliday says, a man like Ringo has got a great big hole right in the middle of himself. And he can never kill enough or steal enough or inflict enough pain to ever feel it. You didn't know that, Ring that Doc Holliday was an Augustine reader. That's Augustine. Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. I think that's Pascal, too, who talks about this vacuum inside of us that can only be filled by God. 
Yeah, yeah, Doc Holliday. So Wyatt Earp says, what does he want? Doc Holliday says, revenge. For what? For being born. Some people are just born angry, you know? And some people get there with a little help along the way. But Ringo needed Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can come in and heal bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. And the more intentional you are, the more, that's important, the more intentional you are about walking with Jesus, the more he'll tenderize your heart. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The principle of forgiveness is that you should forgive others to the degree that you want God to forgive you. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. These are not easy things. <laughs> these are hard. And all of us got hit by one of these, at least. I'm reading a book with some of my friends. John and Matt, we're reading this book called The Divine Conspiracy. Don't read it alone. <laughs> it's a doozy. It's a Dallas Willard book, and he talks about the interior castle of the human soul, as Teresa of Avila describes it. it. has many rooms, and they are slowly occupied by God, allowing us time and room to grow. It's a picture of your interior world like a big castle and slowly, a little bit at a time, you open different rooms of this interior castle to God. And when he comes in there, he begins to change that room. And one of those rooms is anger. And one of those rooms is bitterness. And one of those rooms is truth-telling. And as you let God gently, one at a time in these different rooms, he will heal you. And he will enable you to do the things that you can't do apart from him, including forgiving others. You can't do that on your own. Chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved, and loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The only way, if we're supposed to imitate God, the only way you can actually imitate someone is if you know them. And how do we get to know God? Through Scripture. That's the authorized way that we've been, get, we've been given to get to know God. So you're reading through the Old Testament. You see how God interacts with Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. You see how he interacts with Noah, with the world back then, with people who are building a tower in Genesis 11 to glorify themselves, to reach the heavens, to exalt humanity. You can see how he interacts with that. He will not have anyone exalted above him, even in our own thinking. You see how he reacts to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, a beautiful calling that he gave us, which is the reason why we're in this room today. See how he reacts to Moses leading the Israelites out of slavery, into their own promised land, Joshua, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. How does God interact with human beings? It's for us in the Old Testament. And then in the New, too, it's unpacked and spelled out for us in the letters. 
But most vividly, we see what God is like in Jesus. Because if you ever wondered what God was like if he became a human being, we have that in Jesus. And you can read his biographies in the Gospels and see what he was like for yourself. If you're not interested in what Jesus is like, you're probably not going to like it here. But if you want to know what he was like, that's the place to go. Don't watch the specials on the life of Jesus. They're most of the time a dumpster fire. If you want to know what Jesus was really like, read the Gospels. That's how you imitate him. That's how you get to know him. Taking on the ethic and character of God as described in this passage requires diligence. You know, we talk about grace. And we sometimes think of grace as something that gives us permission to never try. Like, as long as we just come to church and we sit here, we're going to actually become godly through osmosis. It's going to sink into our system from outside of us, from our skin. We're just going to absorb godliness and magically be conformed into the image of God with no effort on our part. We think that's what grace is. That's superstition. That's actually not true. In the same way that you don't absorb sin by going to a whatever, a bar or you name it, you don't absorb Christ-likeness by going to church. Church is a starting point. It's important to be here because this is our reminder that we live in a kingdom. We're not citizens of this world, so this is important. But this is a starting point. This is where the journey begins. Dallas Willard said, Grace is opposed to earning. It's not opposed to effort. So grace means you don't have to earn your salvation. It's a free gift of God in Christ Jesus. But sometimes putting off the old self and putting on new habits requires a little effort. It doesn't happen accidentally. So there's some intentionality that's required on our part. So we have to be diligent about putting off the old self, putting on the new, and for the sake of unity that God has given us in Christ to protect those things, to become the type of person that contributes to the health and vibrancy of spiritual community instead of strips the community of those things. You want to be the person, you don't want to be the person who makes the room brighter by walking out of it. You want to make the room and the place better by walking into it. Look back through this list, friends. And go ahead right now, look back through the list of or review in your mind some of the things that you heard us talking about. Where is God inviting you to grow? What needs to change? Because if we're all the same person a year from today that we are in this very moment, then we're not working with God. We're, we're stiff-arming him. Let's pray. Sometimes Paul is fun to preach, Lord. And sometimes he's really confusing, and I just skip over those passages because I don't know what he means. And sometimes he's blunt and bold. 
because love has an edge to it sometimes. And sometimes we have to hear things from you that don't tickle our ears, that don't affirm us just as we are. God loves us just as we are. Sure you do. And then you invite us to put the old parts of ourselves to death, those parts of us that want to live apart from your glory. And sometimes listening to a message, sometimes studying for a message, sometimes delivering for a message feels an awful lot like dragging the old Adam back to the grave and then hearing afresh the gospel of Jesus who came to save sinners just like me and just like us. Help us to examine our hearts now as Pastor Al leads us into communion. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.